dancing to our intro music that's a lie welcome to the mondo solution my name is jordan mcdonald we have a beautiful guy who we always squeeze the juice out of over here and his name is brandon wood <laughs> b dubs is in the house as usual your two favorite guys here we're we have this great podcast and it gives us a wonderful platform to discuss everything related to digital marketing and marketing as a whole uh, whether that's insights on the past, such as what we'll be discussing today, or a glimpse into the future with AI, or something slightly unrelated. That's where we're here, and that's why you love us, right? That's right. Welcome, Jordan. And let's be fair. It's not two guys that you love. It's one guy that you love and Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm changing my name. That's it. I'm going to be Brandon. To Brandon. <laughs> How are you, sir? I'm really doing well. Beautiful day. Indeed. The sun is shining. Uh, is. And, you know, it's actually the counter uh, opposite of what we have to talk about in a way. The sun's yes. shining here, but it was not it was not shining so brightly back in the Great Depression, was it? Great Depression. Or, as many would say, the really sad depression. I, you know, I'll watch this tangent this early in the show. <laughs> the word great, um, it is. It's interesting because even in like Harry Potter, uh, when he goes to wait for this deep cut, Ollivander's wand shop, and he's like, you know, the it's interesting that you should choose this, or this, this wand should choose you because it's sibling, I think he says. Mm -hmm. It's sibling is the one that gave you that scar. And he goes, oh my gosh, really? And he said, yes, uh, this one did great things terrible things but great things and i think that it's weird i wonder where the term great became synonymous with good because great doesn't always mean good uh it just means um, i guess if you were to break it down it means it's kind of like um uh iconic you know like huge large uh impactful and to that end even kind of monsters like stalin mao Pol Pot, Hitler did great things, terrible, but great things. So anyway, I digress. Yes, the Great Depression. <laughs> yes, etymology, right. And Indeed. I guess we could we could break down the very complex inner workings of biological and psychological chemicals that all come into play with emotions yes, sir. Um, and depression, as it were. I suppose, yeah, uh, whoever coined the term, I'm not sure of the backstory, but depression is also one of those multi multifaceted beasts, right? It's a, a depression is something that happens uh, on the surface of land, right? There can be a depression that can form into a valley or things of that nature, or uh, it can be chemical, biological, right? Yeah. And I mean, for the case of, for the sake of this, and it's one of the things that we're talking right now, it's where the economic, economic recession means that our GDP has shrunk for at least two quarters. Uh, in a row. Uh, that is until the current presidential administration redefined that to make themselves not look like a bunch of incompetent boobs. Um, but that is what that is what a recession is. Uh, it's interesting because we came out of a recession. I think we were in technically in a recession around the the pandemic, but that was kind of. I mean, it's an artificial recession. If there was even a recession, I don't even know that our GDP shrunk for two quarters. I think it like slammed into a wall for one quarter and then kind of just kind of went back to doing its thing. But um, the Great Depression was simply that. I mean, you know, 
some could argue, I, I'd have to go back and look at the data. We're not here to kind of break down the mm-hmm. economic data around depressions and recessions and what have you. But we have certain in raw numbers since lost more and many, like the 2008 bust was way bigger by straight numbers um, than the Great Depression. But when you account for kind of, I think, uh, per capita unemployment and even probably even adjust for inflation, the Great Depression was a much harder impact on the United States. I mean, we had unemployment in large cities of like 25%. It was wild. So Yeah, it is. You know, but the beautiful thing uh, is always humanity is nothing if not resilient. That's right. And some way, somehow, people will find how to bounce back. Yep. Some sooner than others. Uh, and today we have some great success stories uh, with a marketing twist great from the success. Great Depression. And <laughs> uh, I will be referencing, we will be referencing an article from the Wall Street Journal today. Yes, it's a little long in the tooth uh, from the perspective of age. It's uh, from around the time of the 2008 Great Depression. It's actually published on March, uh, May 5th, 2009. So right in the heat of um, the, the recession that began in 2008, which had its underpinnings, of course, long before that. Um, so we will be taking these kind of one by one, and I'll be reading them, uh, and we'll be sharing our brilliant, absolutely brilliant insights. Honestly, I don't think we should post this podcast because we're going to, uh, we're just going to make so many brilliant facts known to the world. So they won't know what to do with them. So many brilliant. I agree with so many facts, but Jordan, before we get to this, uh, some of these brilliant facts you guys will have to find in our previous podcasts. And to get to those, you need to like, follow, share, subscribe, all of those things. Tell your friends. Um, and actually, if I may, little shout out to our audience. We are about to begin doing some interviews in the next few weeks here, next few episodes. So what I would really love is if you guys have somebody that you would like us to talk to. And yes, look, the first person to go, oh, well, clearly Warren Buffett and clearly, you know, Steve Jobs, who's dead. But uh, be realistic. I mean, it needs to be like, my neighbor, Steve, he's really great at marketing. <laughs> so, but we're we're going to start those. And so to make sure that you can hear, see, whatever, all of those things, be sure to go to your, your local podcast catcher. Um, they're right beside the dog catcher's office down the end of the hall on the left. <laughs> and uh, so that you can, whether it's Apple's uh, podcast, Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever. We're also on YouTube. Um, the video is a little bit behind the audio. So when you're listening to those things, please make sure that uh, you understand that all the things that we talk about, uh, sometimes we reference visual things, which again, you can see on the the video version on YouTube, but you can look in the show notes of any given show, whether that's again, Spotify, Overcast, whatever, uh, to see the actual things, because sometimes we'll refer to an image or something like that, especially in like our Valentine's Day episode. Um, check those out. So there you go. Yes. Well said. Well said. Thanks. Uh, and we will actually be starting with the second story, because the first one's more about a gentleman who had a, a crafty way as an individual of uh, manipulating his investments uh, to make cash, but really the the meat of what we want to discuss starts in example two, which is all about movies and uh, the movie industry as a whole. And uh, so I will read this brief excerpt uh, from this article. The beginning of the Great Depression in late 1929 came at a particularly inopportune time for the film industry, which had recently evolved with the 1927 release of The Jazz Singer, a milestone talkie. Remember talkies? I do. Yeah, you're old enough, right? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Just as the industry seemed to be gaining momentum, unemployment shot up in the sort of disposable income one uses for little luxuries like going to the movies steeply declined. 
early in the economic crisis, many movie houses had to close their doors due to the decreased traffic. And most of the once profitable studios started turning losses in the 1930s. Faced with this glum market, the film industry got creative. To give customers maximum bang for their scant bucks, theaters cut ticket prices by 50% or more and started giving patrons two features for the price of one ticket. These double features propped up demand for cheaply made B movies and smaller studios stayed afloat by banging out these quick products. Theater owners resorted to even more desperate hucksterism, though. During the Depression, it was fairly common for theaters to use giveaways to fill their seats. Promotions like Dish Night, in which any woman who attended got a free dinner plate, cash door prizes, and silverware giveaways, were each trip where each trip to see a flick got you closer to having a complete set of flatware helped buoy up attendance. Although box office takes swoons to 480 million in 1933, they slowly climbed back up to 810 million by 1941, in part due to these disaster management tricks. So, first, I didn't know Jerry Seinfeld's movie B movie came out back then. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, so it's very interesting. I mean, I think that, well, when people look at movies and we, when people look at anything, quite frankly, I don't think that we're good at taking into consideration on the fly um, everything that it takes to get there, uh, to make that piece of art. We, we talked about once, I told this kind of apocryphal story and I can't remember the ins and outs of it, but basically it was like this big ship this oil freighter let's call it or whatever it is oil tanker and it wouldn't run like they couldn't get it started um they hired all these great these new engineers fresh out of school these phds yada 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 and uh no one could figure out why it wouldn't run and so then they call this dude who's been an engineer for 45 years he comes over he walks around he looks at it he looks at it this way he knocks on a couple things and then takes out his hammer and hits one spot and it starts right up and he's like, great, that'll be $30,000. They're like, what the hell, man? <laughs> you spent like an hour looking at this thing. Nobody else, can. he goes, look, you're not paying me for the ha the hammer hit. You're paying me to know where to hit with the hammer. You're paying me for my 45 years of experience and all of those things. And I think that with movies, it's very interesting. Look, I, don't get me wrong, I, Hollywood is trash, right? But um, <clears throat> the production that goes into that it's not just some dude sitting there holding a camera. Like there's casting, there's sets, there's costumes, there's food, there's craft services, which is food. Um, I mean, the budgets of just food on some of these things run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars easily because you have to keep the people there fed and powered up and what have you. Um, yeah, there are some exorbitant salaries. Like we see... I remember back when it was a huge deal that Jim Carrey would get $20 million for like the mask or something like that. Um, but I think that all of those things mean that movies aren't just a one for one. I think that people kind of perceive them as this thing that just shows up in a theater, shows up now on your Apple TV, your Roku or whatever it is, or in Redbox for people that use that. Um, <clears throat> but it's all the stuff that comes into it. Like the total budget for a movie sometimes, I mean, wasn't it Avatar that was it wasn't the first billion dollar? Yeah, something like that, right? I mean, it was something insane. Yeah. So yes. all of those things that go into that mean that there's, if at the end of all of these things, there's some mathematics and it has to break down along return on investment lines, ROI. 
So even in the case of of a movie, there that theater, they have the theater has a number. That's the nut. That is where they break even, right? And then on the other end of that, part of that nut is what they have to pay the studio or distribution company in order to run that movie. And then this the the distribution company, and I could be messing some of these steps up, has to then pay the studio, the studio has to pay the production company, the production company has to pay the actors, so on and so forth. There's a lot of math that goes on with that. And so that's why movies cost quite a bit, which I understand. Um, And then streaming and piracy has a lot to do with that, although it's interesting the way that that's been kind of subverted these days. But what I find interesting is that they had shifted and quite a bit of when I was doing some research before this, it's the, it's a paradigm shift in how people consume entertainment in, um, in a time when there are very few things to be joyful about. And generally speaking with, even if it's drama or comedy or whatever, a movie brings you some sort of emotion and dopamine hit at the end of the day. So people would go in and they go, well, you don't need to see a movie. You really don't. But if you go see a movie and you're there and you get dinner, like it's dinner and a show for a nickel or whatever. I mean, it's not just the movie, it's actual food. I mean, you're talking about a time where people like, like super struggling, right? So I find it really interesting how they began, even in this case, to pivot away from um, just you want to see a movie into you need this because if you go in there a, you're probably, I don't know if they had air conditioning at the time, but let's just say you're out of the hot or cold. You're able to see some, something that is entertaining and kind of to whatever degree feeds your soul. Um, and that double feature thing, by the way, I mean, I know people I've heard on podcasts that were unemployed or whatever, and they'll go to a movie theater and just hang out all day. <laughs> they'll just go from one theater to the next. So I think there's a little bit of that in addressing the way that marketing began to shift. And it seems like the theaters were doing it was moving that needle from want from a purely luxurious product to a need, you know, even in the flatware, you have to eat with something. And theoretically, if you need that to pass along to your kids when they get married or whatever, or you need that because you could then turn around and sell that flatware, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for that. It's very interesting. You bring up so many wonderful points. You've left me nothing to talk about, Brandon. <laughs> what, what have you done here? But you're absolutely right. It reminds me, I'll use uh, a comparative analogy. For instance, the pharmaceutical industry, right? It, it's persistently, and not always for lack of merit, getting a bad rap mm-hmm. for these exorbitant prices on you name the drug, right? And it's so it's so uh, it's easy to use them as a scapegoat, mm-hmm. but it's hard. Um, because often we do not realize because it's not made public knowledge for multiple reasons, let, uh, first and foremost, competitive, uh, reasons, how much it actually costs to perform research and development on, on these drugs. And there are so many, uh, that never even see the light of day. They never even make it to the first round of the, the first round of trials, right? Like the, there's so many things that have to go just right, uh, for, you know, these large pharmaceutical companies of the world to turn a profit. And I'm not saying that in every case that's that's the case. Uh, but it's one of those behind the scenes, we often, the, the general public does not realize mm-hmm. exactly how much time, effort, and money goes into making XYZ product or service. Uh, and so now, of course, this isn't the perfect 
comparison because uh, somebody might need that uh, that drug to have a quality of life that is at a, a, a certain minimum. Whereas going to see a movie, this is uh, and kind of always has been in a way a luxury, mm-hmm. right? That you know it's and so it's it's in that sense no, it's it's apples to oranges. But there's always more than meets the eye, and when it comes to to movies, people tend to to flock towards things to make them feel better in times of recession or depression. Uh, and typically speaking, going to see that movie, it's not a huge hit on the budget. I mean, unless you're <laughs> doing it like five times a day no. uh, or if you're cheating the system and just like living yeah. in the movie theater, like <laughs> hiding from the, uh, the attendance, but, uh, Got, like a hot plate. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I actually think that's a great idea. I had no idea that there were such things as, uh, you know, you could create a collection. If you just went to the right movies, they would, you know, over time, you'd finally make the whole dinnerware set. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's a really great idea, actually. I think the the perception is some of those things, and it's it's difficult because in, even in the recession or the, the depression, people were still trying to make ends meet, right? They were still trying to go to a movie or what have you but even the again all everybody down the kind of product line chain of that movie creation needs to get paid needs to make money needs to eat they were suffering financial hardship too i think where the flip happens uh and this is certainly what we see with the pharmaceutical industry these days it's amazing though by the way how 10 years ago different people a completely different set of people were screaming about the pharmaceutical industry than they are today Wild, wild, huh? So, um, but it's where where greed tends to step in, or perceived greed. Um, there's a lot of greed in the pharmaceutical industry. There's a definitely a kind of like um, it's not even an old boys club. It's like an annoying persons club who make sure. So some of those trials, I'm actually reading a book right now about this. Some of those clinical trials have zero. They they should they are supposed to and legally they are supposed to have to do with the efficacy or potential efficacy of a product, but more often than not they have to do with who you know, what you know, who's paying who, who's scratching who's back. That's where those things go. And then again, the pharmaceutical companies are the same companies that are creating drugs that create problems that another drug addresses. Um, that I, those are the things where they screw themselves because they look at. Whether it's money or power, and I mean, there are some people that think there's no truth but power. That's a kind of a different conversation, but they start going down the road of becoming greedy. And even in movie, we movies, we kind of complain about why should I have to pay? Tw- oh my god, can you believe a movie is twenty dollars? I remember you movie used to be this much, dude. I I get it. Like, it, yeah, it's not a huge hit on your budget and all that stuff, but it ain't cheap. It's not getting cheaper. Um, and it's no wonder, frankly, with all the streaming services, it's no wonder that movie theaters, we have what, three, I think here in Colorado that are closing down. Um, so I don't know. I, I, anyway, I think that it is very interesting. They shifted that. I think that what happens is when you come out of that recession where I guess, you know, for a while there, inflation was out of control. I wonder what that's like. And then they kind of had to dial it back. But then all of a sudden the prices start to kind of reset or kind of climb back up to where they otherwise would have been. So I don't know. We're again, I, I'm I keep finding myself going down the economic side of it. But from a marketing perspective, I think that it's very interesting in downtime because we as humans still need to be entertained. 
Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? There's a Gladiator 2 apparently coming out, by the oh, way. No. Yes. With Russell? No, he's not attached to it from what I, I saw some article yesterday. Um, so anyway, it's like Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix as the Joker, but in a toga. <laughs> Joker, Joker. Get it? See what I did there? It's <laughs> a good joke. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm toking that one to the bank. So anyway... <laughs> You've gone one took over the yeah, line. That was so <laughs> stupid. Uh, yeah, sorry. I, I I have many thoughts on that. We should yes. we'll discuss offline. Yes. <laughs> and, and by the way, All so one up. of the things I will say <clears throat> relative to marketing, and you brought up pharmaceuticals, but I feel like there are some movies like this too. Um, a lot of people are willing to take a hit on something because the upside across the way on something else is much larger. Uh, Pfizer notoriously. I forget what the drug was, Z, uh, something with a Z sound. Anyway. Um, Zoloft? No. Xanax? No, no, that's Xanax. It's something. Anyway, what they did was they actually, before, and there's this has been proven in court, before they produced the drug, they were like, how many people are going to, this is this going to kill? And they were like, about 60,000. And they were like, I think. I'm paraphrasing this, so don't quote me. And watch, we're going to get one of those tags on Spotify that's like, these guys are talking about shit they don't know about. So anyway, they they said it's going to probably cost about this many millions of dollars. Let's say, well, it's going to cost us probably $60 million in fines. And they go, okay, cool. Hey, Bob, what are we going to make even with that? We're going to make a billion dollars. They're like, 60 minus a billion. Let me carry the three. Okay, where's it? Okay, we're good with that. Let's go ahead and do it and kill a bunch of people because we're still going to make money. Yeah, that's where kind of the greed comes in. And it's, you know, anyway, I digress. Yes. There's human nature. I will add one uh, yes. dovetail Please. to this movie uh, category. And that is, largely speaking, from the research I performed, the average price of a movie ticket roughly correlates to the average price of um, the average federal minimum wage. Oh. Um, so... Yeah, it, r- roughly, roughly speaking. So, uh, relatively, right? You could spend one hour working, and uh, if you don't factor in taxation uh, with representation, then you will have something where you could, after that one hour, you could go see potentially a, a two-hour film, right? So, I mean, from an hourly perspective, it's good. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I like it. Good calculation. I wonder if that. I mean, I guess that still holds true. I haven't been to a movie in forever. Like I have a two and a half year old. I mean, where am I going? I, I think you're right. They're almost twenty dollars a ticket, depending on where you are in the country, I suppose. Yeah. And the federal minimum wage this year is about fifteen dollars. Yeah. So we yeah, we stream most things anyway. Like somebody asked the other day, they're like, Oh, do you want me to share give you this Blu-ray? I was like, What now? <laughs> I, like I don't I mean, we have an Xbox, I guess, that we could play it in, but that's about it. I don't we just stream, so. You're the problem. You're the I reason why the movie pro- tickets are so expensive. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you never hear that, do you? Don't ever. I have kids. <laughs> Constantly hear that. Okay. Um, number two, number three on the list, but number two for Jordan and I is about Procter & Gamble or P&G. Uh, the Great Depression was trying for most consumer product companies, but Procter & Gamble came out of the whole ordeal smelling better, get it, than it had in 1929. How did the soap giant beat the Depression? Things were tough at first when the mainstay gro- excuse me, when mainstay grocery customers started cutting their orders and inventories piled up. 
PNG apparently realized that even in a depression, people would need soap. Though, so they so they might as people would need soap. Though, sorry, good lord, that combo is placed weirdly. So they might as well buy it from Procter and Gamble. Thus. Instead of throttling down its advertising efforts to cut costs, the company actively pursued new marketing avenues, including commercial radio broadcasts. One of these tactics involved sponsoring daily radio series aimed at homemakers, the company's core market. In 1933, Procter & Gamble debuted its first serial, Oxidol's Own Ma Perkins. I'm guessing that's Oxidol's Own Ma Perkins. Mm -hmm. And women around the country quickly fell in love with the tales of the kind widow. The program was so successful that P&G started cranking out similar programs to support its other brands. And by 1939, the company was producing 21 of these so-called soap operas. Get it? In 1940, the company started <laughs> its own production division for soap operas, and in 1950, it made the first ongoing television soap opera, The First Hundred Years, which ironically only ran for 10 years. Just kidding. It does not say that. <laughs> Procter & Gamble's share price is currently, at the time of this article, again, this is, uh, Jordan, you can look it up. 2009. Here. Yeah, so what is it today? I'd be curious. There, At the time of this article was written in 2009, the Procter & Gamble share price is currently trading at about $20 below its 52-week high. So maybe it's time for the consumer goods behemoth to go back to what works. Might we suggest YouTube videos involving the antics of adorable babies? How about that? <laughs> Um, yes. Thoughts, sir? Yeah, well, first first off, I'll get to your, your stat, right? Yes. So, uh, if, what did it say it was in the article? Their share well, price? Well, at the time, it was $20 below the current 52-week high. Yeah. So, at that time, I don't know what the hell that was, but... Sure. Well, at that time, I can tell you, in May of 2009, their share price was roughly $52. Mm. And today, they're roughly, uh, they're roughly three times that. I wonder so, if they've had any splits in between there. Yeah, I mean it does. It does make you wonder. Yeah, I uh, I can't say for certain, uh, but it's it's interesting. We have a couple of things that are at play uh, with them. First off, Procter and Gamble was in a unique situation where they, uh, if we reference back to several uh, episodes ago, where we were talking uh, about the consumer segments and their changing behaviors. It was uh, also episode 12 where we were talking about marketing in an economic downturn. Uh, and the Harvard Business Review had this brilliant graphic, uh, which uh, I will post a link to, but it 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 shows you know how people most likely react to different product segments, whether it's treated as an essential or a treat or a mm -hmm. postponable or an expendable, and how they react. In Procter & Gamble's unique case, at least for the first part, with soap, that turned out to be an essential. I believe they probably already knew that that was something people were going to continue using. Um, but yeah. And then on the other hand, right, they realize, okay, everybody's going to need soap, but that's, and you know, to your earlier point, it's, it's a loss leader, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure if it was technically a loss leader for them, but uh, because I don't know their margins on soap, but just like in the automobile industry, the loss leader is oil changes. Right, they're, they're they're losing money right. on oil changes, even if it's full synthetic. Right, mm -hmm. and but the upsell is where the benefit is, and for Procter and Gamble, their upsell was realizing <clears throat> that I mean, 
I don't, I don't think people are buying the soap and then realizing that they're, they're going to want this other cereal. Uh, and yeah, yeah. But, uh, and, sorry, needless to say, um, yeah, Procter and Gamble is in a unique position because of their catalog. Um, they could, they could be so flexible. Yeah. That's one of the things that I was going to bring up now. I don't know what they, I would be curious to see what they were at the time. Um, because today their list of brands and I can tell you straight up. So like, um, they have probably 20 as of 2015, the company stated owned the following brand. This is according to Wikipedia, the following brands with net annual sales, net annual sales, not gross of more than $1 billion. That's always aerial. I don't know. heard of that, which is laundry detergent, bounty, paper towel, Charmin, Crest, toothpaste, Dawn, Downy, Fairy, which is a washing up liquid. What the hell is that? Maybe that's a British thing. Febreze, uh, Gain, Gillette, Head and Shoulders, Olay, Oral-B, Pampers, uh, Pantene, SK2. Ah, Japanese cosmetics brand. Tide and Vicks. Those are just those pieces. But when you look at their entire kind of family of brands, it's insane. And they have, I mean, they have a huge huge list of things that they don't own any longer. Like they don't own Coast any longer. They used to own, oh, I saw something. They used to own Crisco. Basically, they've, they kind of diversified themselves across the home needs standpoint because they're recession proof. I mean, it's like booze and gambling, right? Vices are also recession proof. Um, <clears throat> because again, it, that's, I think, to go back to the movie thing, vices generally ha uh, have this kind of escape escaping factor that we that we seek in these but these home goods you know there's less treat yourself and more <laughs> keep yourself alive with the home goods right it's like you do need soap although i will tell you it it's my opinion so take it for what it's worth that we probably over sanitize in our country i mean that's why we don't make antibacterial soap anymore um because it was killing people <laughs> Essentially, because it was killing all the bacteria is good. Germs are good, guys. They are, broadly <laughs> right. speaking. Broadly speaking, they're good. So, <clears throat> um, I mean, hey, they stick to their they stick to their verticals. That's for sure. Um, and even while they got rid of some of these, I'd be curious to know who got rid of some of them. Like, for instance, um, I am's cat food. Um, Procter and Gamble used to own them, and now it's owned by the Mars Corporation, like candy bars. It's weird, right? It is strange. I mean, you could go through the. Uh, we should go through this. Yeah, it's it's weird. Anyway, um, yeah. So they they have done a great job of diversifying around those things that they always know people are going to need, and they're relatively relatively speaking, apart from being in need, but they're relatively affordable. Nothing on any of their list is super. I'm trying to kind of look through. Nothing is super expensive. It's all very kind of within the realm of what you would expect much of it might even apply for things like um uh i don't want to say food stamps because i don't think that's accurate but some sort of like mm, i don't know entitlement spending who knows but um it is very interesting for sure in, in, there's uh <clears throat> there's a component to their competition where i don't know if it's just me but it seems like within the last 10, 15 years, I mean, it really hasn't been that long where they have had direct competition from 
say the Kroger brands of mm -hmm. the world. I, I feel like there has been, I don't have the stats to push this, but I, I absolutely know that it wasn't that many years ago where you didn't see all these competing generic brands yep. for almost every product under the sun. And I don't know if that was kind of spurned on by the Amazon of the world, not the Amazons, just Amazon, <laughs> who is, uh, you know, doing their Amazon essentials, things like that. You know, there's always a way that, hey, you know, listen, we're talking, I can make this same soap product uh, and I'm willing to take a slightly reduced margin as long as it gets purchased in volume. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, and then there, yeah, I'm, I think when it comes to food stuff, uh, and I don't know that Procter Gamble's really making, I mean, yeah, I guess they have foodish products. Not really. They're mostly hygiene and household mm. things. Um, but yeah, a lot of those things that are kind of a lot, not certainly not all, but like the, the, things like Kroger brands, what have you. I think part of that is based on supply chain stuff and being able to go cheaply. They're using seed oils, which are basically poison. Um, there's a lot of that to do with it. Um, but then you see some really legit partnerships. I think that uh, Kirkland's, if I'm not mistaken, I got to look this up. It was like Kirkland's Scotch. Um, Scotch partner. Let's see if I can find this on the fly. Their, their signature scotch, and this is in 22, A, it's super cheap, and they were like, I don't, it was like a top 10 scotch brand. I mean, from freaking Costco, bro. Like, it was wild because they do these great partnerships. I'm trying to find who it is, and it's not going to tell me, and I'm not going to look it up right now, but there are a lot of things where they're going in and, and trying to cut those costs and produce... Because I guess in some cases, I this is my hypothesis, so I could be very wrong on this, but maybe if that's got, that's got, has to have a huge markup. And even when you consider like all the supply chain costs that we were talking about earlier in making a bottle of scotch or whatever, even when you do that, a large chunk of that is just a, a bottle, a barrel sitting there for 10 years or whatever it is. Right. Um, it doesn't cost them. I mean, get us the real estate, but um, <clears throat> so yeah, I, I think those partnerships are great. And I, and this is one of the things that we've even talked about, by the way, I was talking to a potential client about it today. And then Jordan, you and I are talking about, it. we mentioned it earlier a minute ago. We're talking about interviewing people because there's an element of a rising tide lifting all boats. I was talking to this uh, potential client. I can't mention who it is, but they're in a space. I was like, Hey, go, uh, let's say that they're an accountant. I don't know go interview, find a podcast that you really like that's about small business accounting or something like that. See if you can go on the podcast because not only are they going to be likely to say okay, depending on what you want to talk about, um, because they want guests, they want good content, good people to talk to you, but also that you're going to go back and share that. Like one of the things, Jordan, that you and I have talked about is that if we get Bob Smith over here to come in and talk to us, we want Bob to be here because we're going to talk about what we're doing and what have you, but there's going to be a measure of people that are searching for Bob. They might be interested in what Bob's saying. Hopefully Bob shares our, our link on his social media, things like that. So having kind of some of those crossover things is very helpful when it comes to Procter and Gamble. I think these are um, a bunch of very recognizable brands. Yeah. They're kind of, it ain't the Kroger of detergent laundry detergent and things like that, which by the way, we should totally do an article on marketing placement. Because if you ever notice, most of the time, if you go to the laundry detergent aisle, Tide is right about eyeline, 
but not mm-hmm. your eye line because I'm six one. You're six one, I think, right? Yes, sir. It's yeah. not at our eye line. It's at the average woman's American woman's eye line. So like probably six inches lower ish, maybe a little bit more, um, because that is typically typically who is going to be buying that. Um, so I just find that very interesting too. Absolutely, and we should, without a doubt. Yes. Do uh, an article and a podcast on that. We should. <laughs> we should. <laughs> ah, well. In the next section we have here, uh, well said. I don't have anything to add. You're just, you're just so such a genius. We'll just, we'll just leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> well, like movies, musical instruments would seem to be a vulnerable industry in a down economy. But venerable acoustic guitar maker Martin made it through the depression using a number of strategies. The company stuck to its principle of not giving high-volume retailers discounts while maintaining its relationship with smaller dealers and cemented the company's image as a square dealer. Martin also started offering new, less expensive models that went on to enjoy great popularity. The, quote, dreadnought, end quote, body style was one of these triumphs. It included a larger, deeper body that provided more volume and bass resonance. Martin introduced its first archtop guitar in, or archtop, in 1931, and the company also revolutionized its design by using 14-fret necks on its guitars. These technical changes, coupled with Martin's dedication to giving its customers high-quality instruments at reasonable prices, helped keep its sales up throughout the Depression. And, you know, and I think of Martin guitars, you know, back in the thirties, this, uh, people using them would have been Hank Williams, uh, mm. Gene Autry, Woody Guthrie, right? I, this is, this is a significant brand. If you're not, uh, if you're not aware of them, you know, later on Elvis Presley would go on to use them, uh, Bob Dylan and Paul Simon. Um, it, so, but yes. Yeah. What, any thoughts on, on this? Yeah. I, so we, we talked in the past few weeks about when it comes to your marketing sp- <coughs> cough <laughs> when it comes to it we really need a cough button <laughs> are you advertising for like Vicks vapor rub or no I'm not but do you have any um, <laughs> the uh, I Procter & Gamble product or at least formerly Procter & Gamble product um, we talked about sticking to your guns in marketing dollar spend right and and it's not that you shouldn't make a change but the change should be uh surrounding how effective how far that dollar goes and does it reach the right person where's your roi basically increasing your roi not decreasing your spend um and i think that that goes part and parcel with not compromising on quality not compromising on your core values there are plenty of people there. There, there are people in in our space, in the marketing space, um, who and and in many spaces. I mean, we go to car dealerships. That's part of what a negotiation is, and they compromise to come down to a certain level. Now, of course, they're going to make you think they're coming down farther than they are. But in marketing, people find that we don't do contracts, and they try to match that, and they just simply, I, for whatever reason, they don't. Um, people try to kind of sell short or toss aside and I'm not trying to make it sound like they do so haphazardly or out of any sort of malice. They are just willing to set aside their core values for the, for the sale. Right. And that's fine. Um, I think in Martin's case, I love that number one, it was the quality and then kind of innovating. So generally speaking, a classical classical guitar, which is not the Martin, but a classical or flamenco guitar is going to have around 
17 or 19 frets, I think. But that's not your standard acoustic. A standard acoustic is, which, you know, for like picking and what have you in chords, is usually going to be 12, well, at around 12 frets. Um, so 14 frets gave a little more bass. It also, a dreadnought body style, if you know a dreadnought body style, Jordan, it's a, it's a larger body it's kind of got there's no cutaway uh where your left hand what might if you're right-handed guitar player where your left hand might want to come down to the lower frets and things like that um dreadnought body style therefore is going to have a little more resonance in that and all of these things the commonality there is that you are then allowing the home musician and people didn't have money to go out and spend money to go to movies things like that but you might have this guitar because you can entertain your family and a lot of people could sit around and I mean, you didn't have money go to do anything else. So you could have this guitar that you knew was quality that you knew uh, you could have a bigger sound, more volume, more bass, all of those things. The other part that I love about it is the retailer aspect, right? So where the retailer really did not say to the guitar centers, ye oldie guitar center in 1933, <laughs> uh, they, they didn't give a big discount to these big retailers, um, therefore cutting out the small guys. Like, guys, I'll tell you right now, if you think that Amazon pays the same for buying a box of tissues as your local mom and pop grocery store, you are sorely mistaken. And even in our space, by the way, which in digital marketing, so we have to buy ads for people, right? Sort of. There are agencies, very, very large agency, very large agencies who claim to get some sort of a volume discount. Big secret. They don't really get a volume discount. <laughs> but um, this, they stuck by their smaller retailers and really said, hey, we're going to still stand by you. We're not giving these big volume retailer discounts to these guys over here because I, I you know, a, I now I'm only my third a number one, number Q. <laughs> um, you don't, you're, you're, you're less likely to have a, at that time, a big box retailer. Not everyone can go to those in the 1930s. Where are you going to go? Like Sears, I guess probably carry those, but you can go to a local music shop because you probably don't have whether it's gas or money for a bus or whatever it is to get to a bigger store. So they really send them really standing behind their It's not even supply chain. It's kind of the retail chain from beginning to end, I think is really, really admirable. And today, I mean, Martin makes amazing. I do not have a Martin. I have a fender and a kind of a tailor. Uh, yeah. And my daughter has, a Takamini, no, Ibit as an Takamini. Anyway, doesn't matter. Who cares? But I love Martin guitars. Like I'm a terrible guitar player, but I love playing guitar. For me, <laughs> I think I sound wonderful. Um, <laughs> so I think that them standing behind that has really gone on to stand the test of time. They're a heritage brand. If I, I don't even know Martin, they they may still be owned by their OG company. I don't know who the parent company is at this point, but they're always a brand that you know the Martin guitars, you know the Martin name. There are even some places that have tried to kind of jump on board and they're like, oh, we're the Martin and Son guitar company. I'm like, hold on a second. <laughs> no, you're not. Hey, would you, Jordan, uh, remind me later, I'll buy you a Schmickers bar. <laughs> it's like, what? Anyway, I, I think that's wonderful. And I really, it's really admirable that they did that. Yeah, well said. And I just wanted to bring up a few additional points and cement Please. some of the things that you said there. 
right? There's the opportunity when you're at this crossroad as an organization uh, and the crossroad is, you know, potential financial doom, which is, uh, you know, broad, right? Mm. It's not just for you, but it, it's for the economy writ large. What do you do? You're already a brand that's known for selling high quality products, guitars in this case, as you said, a heritage brand, um, which they would continue to grow that heritage as time went on. And here we are today. But there's so many pitfalls that are right in front of you if you make the wrong choice. Right? Of course, I'm sure it was not an easy decision to make. Right. Right. It would have been, I'm sure there's people that were advocating for providing these discounts to big retailers, retailers of which who were also struggling, and they had to find ways to make ends meet. But the risk of reducing the quality of these guitars is is multifold, right? On, on one hand, you can damage your brand reputation over time. If all these people, all of your customers got used to a certain quality and all of a sudden this quality is no longer there, uh, I mean, you're not going to have as many repeat sales. You're not going to have the same people who were absolutely on top of that Procter and Gamble soapbox preaching your cause as Martin guitars. They're going to not be there anymore. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it really, it's like a contagion. It can spread from there. Not only are your once loyal customers, you know, by the wayside because they're not, <laughs> they're not enamored with this low quality product that you're putting out. That puts a potentially an increased stress on your, like your, after sales team, right? If they're, these guitars are lower quality, maybe the strings are less likely to uh, stay intact. Maybe, you know, I, I'm not a guitar person, but maybe, uh, I don't know, however the strings attach, maybe that component is more likely to fail, uh, right? Right, And so then you compound the, the reduction uh, in, you know, general positive consensus for your product with, uh, you know, an even greater negative emotion by not being able to get uh, the support that you need if the support people are overwhelmed. And then my final point is the people building your product, the people mm. building your uh, product or your service, right? These people, if they had come to a point where they were proud about making this high quality product with the Martin name on it, and now they're making a lesser product, still the Martin name on it, but they know it's lesser because they're the ones making it and they know the feedback that's going to come from it. And eventually that feedback, it just, it doesn't, it's not going to end well. Right. Of course, that's a very gloomy, it's a very gloomy uh, situation that I've, I've just proffered, but that's the risk. You right. reduce quality uh, at some point you've reduced it too much and everything just starts to unravel. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it, to, to your point still, it's a slippery slope. Where, where do you stop? And then you're spending more money and time dealing with customer service complaints. Uh, and the same thing has to be said, by the way, in other like <clears throat> shoes. Um, there's a, I have personal experience with this shoe company and they were in, so a, a smaller running shoe company, they can't, it's, it's not a knock on them, but startup shoe companies cannot have their own factory in Korea or China or Indonesia or whatever it is. So this shoe company had like seven factories that they operated out of in eight years. So like it would be an ASICS factory because ASICS is massive, you know, so ASICS might have their own factory. But what happened was that then your quality goes downhill because your manufacturing tolerances aren't what they should be. And then all of a sudden you're spending more money, time, 
and resources on returns, on customer service, on hours, on all of these things, shipping, then you start cutting out your margin where you should have just negotiated a better, well, I'm being reductionist, but tried to negotiate a better deal to stay where you are, to maintain good production quality, so on and so forth. Because with a shoe or even probably a guitar, between the time it leaves production and it hits the hand of the eventual owner, it's not a short period. And if you change a factory every 12 months, then by the time somebody gets that shoe, it doesn't matter anymore because the factory is different. So um, I should also say that one of the things, so I, while you were talking, I looked up this thing. One of the consistent policies of Martin Guitars was to not engage in endorsement deals. At the same time, they did offer as a courtesy to professional musicians, they would offer a 20% discount, but it was not an endorsement. Um, they would also offer, if you requested it, um, custom kind of inlays, like you could have Jordan put on a the headstock or something like that. And what that resulted in is a bunch of people like, using the guitars but not sitting there going you know oh here i am i'm doing this and i work i play only martin guitars like i think dave matthews plays a taylor or something like that so for it, what happens with that for instance is that the 1959 martin d18e which was modified to be plugged in um during Nirvana's by Kurt Cobain during Nirvana's 1993 MTV Unplugged performance, uh, that sold at auction in 2020 for six million dollars, um, which is the highest uh, sale price for any guitar. Um, it's a pretty iconic thing. So anyway, the point being that I'm sure that other than telling his buddies, Kurt Cobain probably never stood up there and and kind of like shilled for Martin. You know, and I don't mean to be pejorative by saying shield, but I just find it's again, I think they've done really things the right way. And it does seem that the company is still owned by the Martin family, as it were, which is awesome. Kudos. Yes. Well done. Not yeah. easy to do over such a length of time. Oh, goodness gracious. All right. Our final one. Is this our final one? Yeah, it is. Okay. The final one is Brewers. Now, before we get into this, we already talked about <laughs> booze being rather uh, recession-proof, recession -proof, <laughs> but that doesn't really apply here. <laughs> so the depression was hard enough for most companies, but the nation's brewers had it especially bad. Sure, money was tight, but brewers' core product, you know, beer, wasn't even legal. During National Prohibition from 1920 to 1933, about half the country's breweries closed their doors for good, but the rest stuck it out hoping for a repeal. How did these brewer make, brewers make ends meet during the Depression when they couldn't sell suds to the distressed 25% of workers who didn't have jobs? By diversifying. And then diversifying some more. Brewers started running dairies, selling meat, and venturing out into other agricultural enterprises. Brewers were also allowed to make, quote, near beer, close quote, that had only trace amounts of alcohol. But the Depression killed off consumer demand from 300 million gallons in 1921 to just 86 million gallons in 1932. <clears throat> Brewers also started applying their expertise to non-alcoholic tipples like ginger beer. During the Depression, there were upwards of 300 brewers making the spicy soft drink. Frank Yugling, 
who had headed the brewery of the same name outside of Philadelphia, remained confident that Prohibition was just a phase, and he personally diversified widely, including a foray as a bank president and opening a dance hall. In the end, waiting out the storm by diversifying and maybe brewing some illicit beer on the side turned out to be a good strategy. According to a 2005 survey of the American brewing industry, eight of the ten largest brewers in the U.S. are pre-Prohibition brands that survived the Great depression so yeah oh man there's it's kind of an extreme example right in the sense of uh, uh, several extreme examples right brewers their (laughs) their whole raison d'etre is toast right they're they're no longer legally able to uh, perhaps at least sell it i perhaps i don't know if there's a law against creating it but they're no longer allowed to at least sell it uh, and the links that some of these individuals uh, went through just to, to ride out the storm, I mean, right, uh, becoming a, a bank president, opening a dance hall. This isn't this isn't exactly analogous to the things that you, business owner, great business owner in the true sense of the word, you are amazing as well. Uh, this isn't necessarily indicative of what um, what you might do today, although it could certainly be true, but it really harkens back to other diversification efforts in other industries. I mean, even just uh, a prior example that we mentioned here today, Procter & Gamble going from soap, something that is not exempt, not expendable, but essential, and realizing, well, hey, you know, people, they're not going out as much. They're probably going to be at home. They want to still be entertained uh, and and by Russell Crowe. No, just kidding. They, <laughs> they want that entertainment. And so why not, you know, Procter Gamble make that serial? Those those shows uh, across the brilliant airwaves uh, that were, you know, and I'm sure they could also pitch their soap at the same time sure. in between. You know, I'm not, I can't, I can't say for certain, but uh, it just speaks to a larger effort of when in trouble, there's a number of things you can do, right? As we talked about, you can reduce your quality, right? You can write it out. You can diversify. You can do a combination of these tactics. But at the end of the day, you need to diversify. Just like Amazon went from just being about books to being about literally everything under the sun, uh, there is a way forward. And and in many cases, it has nothing to do uh, with what your original business plan was, right? Uh, and and that's okay. Flexibility is a must if you are to survive in this in this world as a business endeavor. Yeah, I I think that so first prohibition does not work. Period. Ever prohibition is what kicked off. I mean, it's certainly not the dawn of organized crime, but it was right about then. Um. So that was a terrible time for the depression to happen. Um, and I do think I, I'm, you know, it was the progressive movement, the women's Christian temperance league and those people that really pushed for um, prohibition during that time, Molly hatchet and all that stuff, not the band. Um, so uh, coming out of that, like how, what do you do with people that are sitting around. I mean, they were, they're probably, I, I would love to, because there's a Ken Burns documentary, I believe before Ken Burns went off the deep end called prohibition that I, I would actually like to go back and watch. I've watched it before and I kind of forget what was happening, but like when prohibition ended and if you've ever watched boardwalk empire, I strongly suggest it's very fun. Um, you know, those <laughs> you, you're going to have a bunch of unemployed, very bored, 
very pissed off people because you've taken their booze away. Sober. <laughs> yeah. And then, they've, you know, the other thing is that when you encourage illicit brewing or distilling, and this is part of the, I think, quite frankly, it's a BS excuse because I think that in booze, the market would regulate itself to a large degree. Um, the the progies, as it were, right? The F- F- Elliot Ness and those boys um, come in and like destroy your stills because they go, oh, you can die from drinking the with the heads on uh, moonshine, for instance, um, <clears throat> which I think is ethanol and will straight up kill you. Um, but, <clears throat> or make you blind or something like that. Maybe that's something else that makes you blind. Anyway, um, it was... It, there's a there's a safety factor because you're pushing people to do something to assuage their own boredom or sorrow or anxiety, whatever it is. Um, I do love the diversification where they kind of go down and they, again, they move from beer, which is a perceived need. It is rarely a need. And into something that, you know, they're doing what they say, meat and like. I know that, um, was it during Katrina that Coors was producing water? They were taking bottled water and taking it down there and what have you. Um, so I do love that diversification. It means that you're not, your profit centers are not hung up in one vertical or another. You can pivot and move and you can actually do things that are complementary of one another, much like the pharmaceutical industry creates a problem with one drug and solves it with another. Um, whoa, it's a little on the nose. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, I love that diversification of that. It's also interesting that during that time, and I am not well versed, and I'm not I'm not a huge drinker to begin with. But like, I, I during that time, beer was beer was beer. I'm sure there was like lager and pilsner, and that's kind of it, right? Um, maybe a pale ale if you're in India or something. But what's really interesting is that today there's actually this movement toward. Uh, I don't know if it's a movement. Uh, that may be overstating it, but there's great brands that are doing non-alcoholic things. Athletic Brewing is an entire brand based around non-alcoholic beer that is really, really delicious. And it, it there's it's alcohol-free. And there then there are um, entire brands in uh, uh, what's the name of the brand? It's not Grolsteiner. It's something in it's something in Germany or Austria or something where one of those countries with a lot of consonants they (laughs) (laughs) they uh they sponsor like big triathlons and cycling events and stuff like this and it's all alcohol free but those the way that athletic brewing is approaching it i really like you know a lot um so i think that the diversification among the product is really cool because now we do things we have pumpkin beers and if you've ever had like the apricot blonde from dry dock brewing. Like there's some really fantastic things. It's not just beer. If somebody goes, give me a beer, I'd kind of look at them sideways and be like, what? Of course we live in Colorado. So that doesn't help. But I think the diversification, even within your product line, it would have been cool to see how the reaction would have been at that time to buy a non-alcoholic beer. My suspicion is that it would not have been great. I don't think it would have worked because you're still the, the reason that people are drinking is drinking to uh, self-medicate. And if you can't do that, because there's nothing there, I'm surprised there wasn't a bigger kickoff of like, and maybe there was, of drug usage. I, I mean, I'm sure this is around the time that you would have like opium dens hanging out in San Francisco or whatever it is, much like today. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I wonder if there's some self-medication going on. Sorry, San Francisco. No, I'm not. 
<laughs> I mean, so it's a, it can be a beautiful place and yeah. it's such a shame that it is presently not as beautiful as it can be because right. it's a great place to visit. I like visiting. It is. Yeah. If you really want to have your stuff stolen, that's your spot. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> There's yeah. so many angles here, right? Yes. Uh, but I, I'll just say a, a couple Please. brief points, right? So my understanding about the probate, I'm no expert. Yeah. Um, I'm a former drinker, mm -hmm. uh, so I know a thing or two. No, but I've, I really have no idea about um, the the uh, you know the intricate details. But my understanding largely was that there was a shift in the production of alcoholic-based drinks, right? And where people would perhaps drink workers would perhaps like drink throughout the day. It was, um, it was less because it was such a, it was low alcohol content. It was low alcohol content. They weren't just getting plastered while they were working, but you know, with the advent of, uh, you know, harder spirits and the same level of drinking, it, it posed an issue, right? Uh, allegedly. Right. So, and of course there was also a time where drinking beer or I, perhaps it was mead was mm was safer than drinking the water because it had been, uh, you know, had been distilled or whatever the right term for that is. It had been processed in a way where it was actually safer than any, almost anything else you could drink. So that, that had, uh, a role to play. Uh, but, but yeah, yeah. Diversification is out there and, uh, you should yeah. explore it if, I, if it, you need to, right? It's probably ale because meat is made from honey. Okay. <clears throat> it's, it's something fermented because it would kill the bacteria. Or animal cules, as they used to be known back in the day. Dead serious. You can look it up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, you know what would be very interesting, kind of an offshoot? I don't know that there's a, a podcast episode on this, <clears throat> but it would be very cool to look at the kind of the, 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 oh man, I am not articulate right now, but the theories or techniques or the, the marketing behind marketing something that isn't supposed to be there. In other words, speakeasies. How were speakeasies talked about? How were, because, you know, we have these things where, and, and part of that might be a network marketing, like a networking group and things like that, where you have this kind of in line, this, this uh, inside tip on this service or product, in this case, speakeasies. There was a place in um, the fan, which is a part of Richmond, Virginia. Let's see, Richmond. I'm going to look this up. Fan speakeasy. And it was, uh, it's going to kill me that I can't figure out this freaking name. Anyway, it was this restaurant in the fan. Um, and you would go in and you would just kind of up front. There were a few, like, I might not even be there anymore. There were a few uh, booths and tables and things like that. But then you would walk to the back and you would see um, this, it would look like one of the, you know, the bathrooms where you go back this back hallway and it's all narrow and painted that weird mint green color that all of those rooms are painted. <laughs> and then at the back, you're like, oh, that's a mop closet. Well, you go over to the mop closet and it was yeah. not. And it would drop down like three or four stairs and you go into this room with like a jazz, uh, kind of a riser podium, kind of platform in the middle with guys from VC where I went to school playing, like crushing it on jazz and boot, like those dark leather, red leather booths are on the outside with the candle, you know, the red candle, the squat with the thing in the thing, you know what I'm saying? In the, <laughs> so the, thing in the, the thing in the place with the guy. So <laughs> you would, and you would say that it was a total speakeasy, but it was an actual leftover speakeasy from back at that time. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, so there's a lot of like, 
oh, how do you know about this thing where it, it kind of plays into a bit of scarcity marketing, like you're in the know, which we've yes, already talked the, about, scarcity the marketing. Crowd. Yeah. So I wonder how that plays in. I feel like there's, it's like anti-marketing almost. Oh, no, you don't want to go in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It's, yeah, I know you. Yeah. You wouldn't like it. It's like it's like that guy. So I have a friend who used to, he was a sales team leader and he would make his um, new reps who are kind of new to sales always read this book by this complete douche called Mystery, called The Mystery Method. And it was always, it was all about picking up checks. Total douche. Anyway, but the point was from a sales perspective, there were a lot of lessons to be learned in that. And one of those things was negging. Negative, uh, negative comment. Jordan, I love your glasses. That'd be, <laughs> so, be, no, it'd be great if you didn't have to wear them. <laughs> yeah. A backhanded compliment. Yeah, Jordan, <laughs> like you go up to a person, you're like, oh, <laughs> that shirt looks great on you. Did they, did they, they didn't have it in a bigger size? No. <laughs> I mean, that, so, but that's what that is. You're negative. It's kind of a, ne- oh, you don't want to go in there. You don't, nothing goes on there. It's nothing. You don't want to say, but there's a part, maybe it's a, it's, I mean, it feels like curiosity, you know? Anyway. Yeah. Th- there are many aspects of like human behavioralism yes. that are at play when it comes to the speakeasies, things that are in existence, but not supposed to exist. Uh, and how do you find them? I mean, of course, it goes without saying that word of mouth right. is the primary primary vehicle. And when you know a place is cool, you know it's illegal in this case, you are naturally going to self-select mm. who you tell that to. And yeah, and as you said, who you turn away if they have happened to hear about it, but you don't want their kind. That's right. Um, maybe they don't dress appropriately for such a classy speakeasy right yeah. maybe they would be too vulgar or uh too obstinate right like yeah there's there's a way to uh to procure and filter yeah. um but but yeah but i guess that by itself assuming all those things i just said were true it kind of breeds a uh i i don't i don't know what the right word is here but kind of like a higher in a sense of the world a word like a, a higher clientele a more refined clientele yeah. if or, you will which could discreet. be willing more discreet, it, yep. perhaps willing to pay more uh, than they might if the place was not so all of those amazing things. They read, they wear four-piece suits, not just this three-piece bullshit. Yeah, oh, my. Come on. It's like <laughs> the, the jacket, the vest, the pants, and an, like an ascot. <laughs> I'm never getting the cigar smoke out, I'll tell you that much. That's after right. That speaking the 21 Club, by the way, is another one of those there in New York. That was a, they're now a a great restaurant, but they'll show you, uh, and it may be on that documentary, uh, maybe not, where they take you down there and they close this big door and to get in there, you have to take like this meat hook because it's where they would store their meat and they take this meat hook and stick it through this hole in the wall. The wall's like a foot thick or some nonsense and they put it in there and they pull on it and it it pulls a latch and opens the door, but you would never think to do that unless you know. And you don't know the password. <laughs> 24. It's, it's, it's Schmickers bar. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, is that what just melted in my pocket? <laughs> oh, God. No, that's because you didn't get to the bathroom quick enough. <laughs> oh, gross. I'm I so think sorry. I need a Procter & Gamble product. <laughs> oh, Lord. Or several. <laughs> Including Tide. <laughs> that yeah. was terrible. Everybody's like, whoa. <laughs> 
<laughs> All three people are just really disappointed right now. <laughs> <laughs> Boo! Yeah, no, 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 please stay till the end. Wait. Send your notes to. <laughs> uh, all right. Awesome, man. I love that. It's really cool to see these businesses that, ex- six, blah, 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 that have succeeded. And by the way, if anybody listening knows the one that we should highlight, uh, we'd be happy to, in our listener <laughs> yet to come uh, listener mail segment, tell us, like, what is something that maybe in your state, your neighborhood, your town, whatever that is, that has succeeded, that is that has lasted through that thing, and maybe it's a story of where the name lasted, but the original kind of went away and then it came back they diversified into completely differently named companies and they came back around. I love, I love stories like that because at the end of all of those things, there is always marketing. However that happens, even if it's a buddy telling another buddy over the fence in the backyard, a la home improvement, (laughs) (laughs) Wilson, (laughs) (laughs) even if that's the case, that's still a form of marketing. Um, So yes, I would strongly encourage you guys to send us a note to podcast at trimondo.com. Yes, please and thank you. And thank you always for your patronage. I appreciate you all so much, especially you, B-dubs. Especially Jew, Jew to the Mac, Jew? What the hell? J to the Mac D. You, J to the Mac D. (laughs) Who is not Jewish? You, J to the Mac D. Unless there's the, you know, the old McDonald clan in Israel. I don't, maybe, maybe. Did you have like a a Mick Mick Mitzvah instead of a Bar Mitzvah? All I remember is a lot of Big Macs. You know, it's it's just all a blur of vanilla ice cream. I was 13. They were green yarmulkes everywhere. All right. Sorry. <laughs> we went down a tangent. It was really good. <laughs> so I meant to say J- U2, J to the Mac D is where I was going. My my mouth did other things. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. Until next time, we are the Mondo Solution. Woo! Woo!